we're continuing this series we've just called Songs of Christmas. That's why we have you stand each week and sing one of the songs of Christmas because uh, we want you to relate to the Christmas season not just as a, you know, not just as a holiday on the calendar, but as a historical spiritual event that has present uh, meaning to it. So as we kind of think about the songs of Christmas, how many of you have already found a radio station that plays Christmas music all the time? Come on. It's on, in your car. If I go crank your car right now, I know what's going to happen. Rudolph and right, everything's going to be blasting. Uh, how many of you, like, when it comes on, you lock the doors, roll the windows up, turn it up as loud as you can, and sing at the top of your lungs? I'm not the only one! Yes! Yes, it, my family loves it. They cherish those moments where I'm screaming at the top of my lungs Christmas songs, and I only know half the words. They really, really, really like it. So it's kind of a cool thing. You find a radio station that plays Christmas music, and you can pipe in a little Christmas happiness anytime you want and pretend that you lock out all the long Christmas lines and the bumper-to-bumper traffic and all the people screaming and losing their mind trying to get their Christmas shopping done. How many days we got left? Anybody know? How many Christmas shopping days we got left? Anybody? Nobody's counting? Twelve? Somebody just had an anxiety attack. Twelve? I haven't even started. Let me tell you what the the top ten most played Christmas songs on the radio. Top ten most played Christmas songs. Number ten, Feliz Navidad. Can I get a witness over in this part of the room? Yeah, there you go. Feliz Navidad. Number nine, The Little Drummer Boy. Number eight, Here Comes Santa Claus. Number seven, Snoopy's Christmas. I assume by that they mean the little, the little Peanuts, you know, piano song. Dun, 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 like that. Number six, the Christmas song, which, which I had no idea what that was. I looked that up. Chestnuts roasting on the open fire. That's the Christmas song. Number five, Jingle Bell Rock. Number four, in my opinion, the all-time worst Christmas song ever sang or written anywhere in the universe, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. Do you understand the moral dilemma that you just put in a child's mind when they think at the same time, Santa is real, but mom's having an affair with him. I don't have a dad anymore. My family's going to divorce. Do you have any idea what the dilemma is there for a child? You've ruined everything sacred in one moment. No idea why we have that song. And it's fourth. I have no idea why it's fourth. Number three, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Number two, Last Christmas, I Gave You My Heart, the number one most often played song on Christmas radio station, White Christmas. How many of you like the movie White Christmas? Love it. I'm I'm a sap. I love it. Watch it every year. I love it. My wife introduced it to me. I'd never seen it in my life. I'd always watch It's a Wonderful Life. It's kind of like Star Trek and and Star Wars. You're either It's a Wonderful Life or you're a White Christmas person. Those kind of don't mix. So she introduced it to me. Well, hopefully you've noticed something about this Christmas list. Only one of the songs in this list has anything to do with the birth of Christ. And it's number nine. It's the Little Drummer Boy. And by the way, that's kind of a stretch. The Little Drummer Boy has something to do with the birth of Christ, but it's not even in the Bible. It's about a boy who plays a drum, and he somehow finds himself at the manger scene with baby Jesus. He didn't have a gift to bring because he was too poor, but he had a drum. So his gift to Jesus was a serenade that somehow Mary, the mother of Jesus, nodded him on like, you're good. And the ox and the lamb kept time. You know, I don't know what they're doing over there. Like, I got a dog, he don't keep time. Trust me, I got an animal, they don't do that. 
so, so somehow this song that's the only one on the top ten list that has anything to do with the birth of Jesus is a little bit far-fetched. So if you're wondering why our celebrating so empty, you might have to not look any further than our Christmas songs and our movies, most of which have nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. Look at all the Christmas movies that are coming out and tell me which ones have anything to do with the birth of Christ. But Christmas is ripe. The first Christmas is ripe with songs that were sang. And those songs had nothing to do with royalties. They had nothing to do with entertainment. I'm not sure they even had anything to do with talent. They came from the soul. They came from the spirit. They came from inside a person in response to some of the greatest things that God has ever done on earth. These songs were spontaneous and they were filled with meaning. So a couple of weeks ago we started this series called uh, Songs of Christmas. Last week we talked about Zechariah's song that he sang when his son John was born. If you remember the story that we shared last week, it was a miracle because Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were too old to have kids, but uh, God fixed that, and, and he gave them a baby. And so in way too old age, she has a baby, and Zechariah is struck mute because he doesn't believe it's going to happen. And then when the baby's born, all of a sudden God miraculously gives him his voice back, and when he does, he sings a song that we looked at last week. And even, even when it looks like what we said last week, even when it looks like God's doing nothing, and even when it looks like God's saying nothing, God still has a plan and God's still working that plan. Now if you turn to Luke chapter 1 in the same chapter that we looked at last week, kind of right in the middle of that story in Zechariah and Elizabeth, the angel Gabriel comes and tells Zechariah that they're going to have a son named John. Elizabeth is now six months pregnant uh, with, the, with the baby John. And this is where we pick the story up. Right in the middle of Elizabeth's pregnancy, a young girl enters the scene. This time, she's not an older lady, but a very, very young girl. She's single. She's not been married. She's probably around 14 or 15 years old. Obviously, her name is Mary, who later became the mother of Jesus. The same angel Gabriel comes to her in a poor village called Nazareth, about 70 miles away from where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. And God sent Gabriel with another birth announcement. And if you thought the last conception was a miracle, this couple was way too old and they've never had children and they're about to have children. If you thought that conception was a miracle, wait till you hear about this one. This girl's never been married. She's single. She's a virgin and her baby's God. Try that one. And as the angel is telling Mary what's going, going to happen, he also tells her that Elizabeth is six months pregnant. So who do you think in the whole world, you got a 14-year-old girl, finds out she's pregnant, she's a virgin, uh, all the things that are going on in her life, who do you think the first person she turns to is? Elizabeth. <laughs> who else on earth could possibly understand what she's going through? Who would be more open to a teenage girl saying her pregnancy was a miracle that a woman in her 60s who's pregnant with her first baby by a miracle of God, whose husband's been struck mute by a miracle of God, who the angel told all of this is going to happen to Mary. Now you'll, you still have the little hurdle of, by the way, my baby's God. You think you like your baby. My baby's God. Isn't he cute? No, my baby's God. Your baby's cute. My baby's God. But this is all starting to make sense. The same angel... Gabriel, it's a conception miracle. 
The first baby is born in advance because when he becomes an adult, he's going to go in front of Jesus and tell everybody that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's on his way. It's probably impossible for you and I this morning to understand the storm of emotions that blew through that young girl. First off, who gets to talk to angels? I haven't. Second, her baby was created by God. Third, her baby was God. (laughs) I mean, this is a lot of information. She must have been overwhelmed by the privilege. You have to understand, this is never going to happen in human history again. It's never happened before, and it's never going to happen again. It can only happen to one girl, and she's the one. Can you imagine the overwhelming privilege that she must have felt that God picked her? I'm sure that when the angel's talking to her, her mind is racing with pictures of other women that she thought would be more worthy of this event than herself. Can you imagine the dilemma she must have felt? Why me? How did I qualify for this? On the other hand, she's still 14 or 15 years old, and all of a sudden the life she thought she had was in jeopardy. Everything about her life just changed in one visit from an angel, and it would never be the same again. In her culture, there was a lot of uh, um, shame attached to unwed pregnancy. And, And in fact punishable in extreme cases by death. So for her to have a baby out of wedlock, she could have been tried, found guilty, and she could have been executed. Remember the woman that was called in adultery? They're about to stone her to death. She could have been stoned to death for this. So her life is at risk. Also, beyond execution, she's at least going to live a life of shame. And her Her uh, fiancé, who she's engaged to, she would have had to have some kind of formal divorce or he could have divorced her. So there's the love of her life, Joseph. How would he ever... Let's just pretend she didn't get executed. How would he ever accept this? He knows it's not his baby. He knows this baby doesn't belong to him. He didn't sleep with her. So the question is, who did? How is this ever going to work? Now, one of the things that is startling about this story that's never happened in the world before or since. Mary's a virgin. Now, now that, that speaks volume about her as a person. And I just want to stop the story here for a minute and just say this to you. Sometimes in life, you do everything right and things get worse. Think about that. What did she do wrong? What did she do to bring on this? She was honoring God. She was honoring her relationship with Joseph. She was right with God, and she was right with people. And she was a virgin. And what did she get for it? What did she get for it? What she got for it is people on earth who lived and died and never believed she was innocent. Guarantee you there was some crazy aunt somewhere or some jealous other girl, somebody that never believed she was innocent. They went to their grave believing she was guilty and she had to carry the burden of that. And then there was the pain of raising a child who left home and became one of the most polarizing figures in world history. Jesus, you loved him or you hated him. There wasn't nobody in the middle. Not that I could see. And she raised this boy to be a man and he lived on the edge of controversy and he died at 33 years old. Nobody wants their child to die at 33 She outlived him. Joseph outlived him. And there you see on Easter, we talk about this 
horrific, bloody, messy, nasty scene. This life that started with such incredible human promise is now hung up on a cross and bears for everybody to see. And almost everybody who Jesus loved and almost everybody who loved Jesus is gone, but right there at the foot of the cross is mom. She never left him. Now, he might be Jesus to me and you, but he was her son. That's the burden that she carried. She carried an unbelievable burden, and she started it so young in life. And for those of you who are sitting here this morning say, I don't have secret sin. I'm doing my best. I'm walking close to God. I'm honoring God in my heart. Why won't things get better? Why won't God help me? Why won't God reward me? Why won't God respond? Why won't God give me a breakthrough? Why won't God give me a miracle? Where's the answer? It seems like the more things I do right, the worse things get. Can you imagine? Mary must have felt that too. This is what you get for doing right? Maybe I ought to try doing wrong for a while. And you can feel that. I don't have an answer. I can't explain that to you. We talk about a lot of times how we should trust God, how we should trust God. Things get hard, things get tough. We don't know the answer, we should trust God. Let me just lay this on you for a minute and offer this to you. Maybe you should consider when you're going through a tough time that God trusts you. Remember Job? God picked him. Did God pick him because he was mad at him? Did God pick him because he did something wrong? No, God picked him because he did it right. Because God trusted him. In some ways, suffering and going through hard times might even be the work of God and the proof of the trust that he has in you to serve him and honor him no matter what. Now that's a hard truth, but I don't know how else, I don't know how else that you would, you would process this for Mary. The the good news is he trusts you and he's not done. So hold on if you identify with Mary in this way. So as Mary's thinking about this, she's got to be wondering, would she be outcast? Would she be shamed? Would she be stoned? Would she be divorced? No one of us could really understand what she's going through. How could she get people to believe her story? They don't get the benefit of seeing the angel. They just have to trust that she saw one. And in spite of the storm of emotion, she willingly surrenders to God's plan. In verse 38, she calls herself a bond slave of the Lord. And in the end, she quietly embraced God's will for her life, and she left the details to God. Now, here's Mary carrying the weight of the world. I don't know how long it took her to decide to go see Elizabeth. I don't know how long it took her to go 70 miles. But she kind of beelines straight over here to see Elizabeth. And as Mary enters Elizabeth's house, she sees signs of God's power all around her. She sees this older woman who, who has no physical ability to have a baby who's six months pregnant. That's a sign that God does conception miracles. Can you believe the testimony to this in her heart? When Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, uh, uh, the Bible says that John, the baby in her womb, jumped for joy. So there's another sign that God's involved in this. And at the same time, uh, Elizabeth, the Bible says, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's another sign that no matter how crazy all this sounds, God's involved in it. In Luke chapter 142, you can hear what Elizabeth says. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. This is Elizabeth talking to Mary. But why am I so favored that the mother of the Lord should come to me? How does Elizabeth know it's God? 
But she knows. And she's confirming in this young 14, 15-year-old girl's mind that this is all from God. And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill His promises to her. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of knowing you're in God's will. I don't know if you've ever experienced that pleasure, that joy of knowing that you're in God's will, of just being in a spot that you're so deeply convinced that you're where God wants you to be that the challenges that you face are eclipsed by the peace and the joy that you feel of knowing no matter what happens, I'm where I'm supposed to be. It is an absolute privilege and an absolute joy to have that a quiet confidence and a deep peace and an abiding joy that gives you the resolve to face no matter what happens. I can remember uh, years ago after going through um, a season of turmoil, Stacy and I had been married uh, maybe two years, and we, there was a transition we made in ministry, and it was the weirdest thing. We went to a little town. We tried out for a church. I drove from one end to the other, and I went, this town's got one road. I grew up in a city. I'm from a city. I can't live in a small town. I'm going to die. Like, I thought the town we were in, in central Florida, was too small, and it was, you know, four or 500,000 people. And I, I, I can't do this. Like, I'm boxed in here. i gotta, got to be something else here. And we drove to one or the other, and, and it's the weirdest thing. We met with the pastor, we met with the leaders, and we never even went to a church service. And somehow it dawns on me after we said, yes, this is where we belong. We pack up everything where we live. We got in our moving truck, and we're driving down the road. And on the way there, I look at Stacy and I say, these people could be snake handlers. I don't know who they are. I don't know nothing about these people. They could be crazy. What are we doing? What is wrong with us? And we pack up, and we get there uh, late on a Sunday night, they come out of their Sunday night service and a team of people come over and help us unload who we've never laid eyes on in our life. And they unload all our stuff and kind of throw it around the house. We get mattresses set up in a bedroom in the back of the house. We don't even have the bed set up. We're exhausted. It's been a long, long day. We had our send-off at one church. We arrive at the next. We're trying to unpack and get some sleep for the night. We lay down on our mattresses on the floor that night. We lay there and as we finally... For the first time that day, hear the quiet. I'm lying there, and I can't describe for you the unbelievable, rich, sweet, incredible peace I feel. That I can't explain it. I don't have all the human data to prove it. But we are right where we're supposed to be. There's a joy and a confidence that comes in that moment. And this is what Mary's experiencing. The storm raging inside Mary had been calmed. Her doubts and fears have been settled. And now, here it comes, a song pours out of her heart in response to the fact that she's going to be the mother of Jesus. Here's what she sings in chapter 146. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost being. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. Very important. Remember those two thoughts. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised 
our ancestors. Now, this is called the Magnificat because this is Mary magnifying God. Now, I just want to close this morning and share two, two powerful thoughts from that song. Here's the first one, if you want to write it down. Two things that sort of be, seem to me to be prevailing themes in this song. The first one's humility. Did you notice phrases like, God shows mercy to those who humbly fear Him. God has scattered the proud and brings down the ruler, but has lifted up the humble. Think about all the things that God used in this, in this Christmas song. He uses lowly Nazareth, poor Joseph, young Mary, old Zechariah and Elizabeth, and little town of Bethlehem. There's no place, no person that you would have picked. You and I could have lined everybody on earth up and we'd have never picked these places or these people to use. But God did because God is attracted to the humble. God is attracted to humility. God is attracted to surrender. I actually think God likes it when we don't know what to do because we turn to Him. When we don't know what to do, when we don't know what decision to make, when we don't know how to handle something, I think in some ways, I don't mean mischievously, I think, I think joyfully. God says, yes, yes, this is what I want, this is the relationship that I want with you. And I think God likes it. Is it possible that you and I sometimes miss the plans of God because, and the impossible things that He wants to do because we already know enough? We're self-sufficient, self-satisfied. We're smart enough. We got the big picture. We got the bottom line. We've checked the box. We've made our plans, and we know what's going to happen next. If you only had two choices this morning, would you be more like Mary, or would you be more like the Pharisees? Would you be more like the teenage girl who's stepping out on a limb of faith because she doesn't know what else to do, or would you be more like the one who's comfortable with their current knowledge of God? If those were the only two choices you had, which one would you be more like? See, God responds to humility and not pride. He responds to His plan and not to our plan. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God always responds to humility. So here we find this little teenage girl who knows more about God because she's experienced Him than any Pharisee in Israel than the high priest in Jerusalem. She knows more about God because she's experienced Him in a completely different way. So the first thought I see in this, in this song is humility. Here's the second one, and it is God's unlimited power. Mary magnifies God for His unlimited power. If God can give an old couple a baby that's too old to have a baby, that's never had a baby, if God can strike the, the dad of that baby mute, if God can give a virgin girl a baby, if God can make that virgin girl's fiancé okay with it, then, then, I, then I guess God can do anything. Then I guess God can do the impossible. God's unlimited power. Christianity is filled with God's unlimited power. Jesus, who's given to a virgin girl, shows God's unlimited power. But watch this. On Easter Sunday, in a few months, we're going to celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Christmas and Easter. And they are blinding revelations of God's unlimited power. Christianity is about God doing the impossible. So I want to end this morning and I want to share with you my favorite verse 
from the entire Christmas story. Doesn't matter what Sunday, doesn't matter what song, it doesn't matter which gospel. I want to share with you my absolutely favorite verse from the entire Christmas story. It's Luke 137. For nothing is impossible with God. You know my favorite line in the Scrooge play is when the angel looks at Scrooge and she says, Scrooge, you're never too old. You're never too old. For, no, for nothing is impossible with God. It, isn't it interesting that this song is filled with opposites? Humility, unlimited power. Humility and unlimited power. This is a song about the impossible power of God and the humility of people. So you and I have to have faith to believe that God can do the impossible. But I don't even think that's the biggest challenge. I think it's easier to have faith to believe God can do the impossible than it is to have the humility to ask Him for it. I think that's bigger. So I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. I want to ask our prayer team to come. And I want us to pray together today. This is the moment where we meet the God who can do the impossible. As the prayer team comes, every eye closed, every head bowed. You're here this morning in the service, and I want to speak directly to your heart. You're hearing you say, I've got some impossible circumstances in my life. You know, you know, as I was praying this morning, the Lord really spoke to my heart and said, there's going to be people at church this morning who in their heart have said, I can never forgive, I can never let go, I can never heal from this wound that's in my life. From this wound from childhood, from this wound from my family, from this wound from my dad, from this wound from my ex, my ex-spouse, from this wound. I can never heal from this internal wound. And I just want to say to you today, God can do the impossible. Do you have the humility to ask Him to do it? Can you take a step of humility and say, God, I'm asking you today to do what only you can do. I've tried and it didn't work. Maybe you're here today and there's another need. It has nothing to do with that. But you have another need and you say, I need God to do something that to me looks impossible and I, I can only take a step of humility. Can I tell you, God is so attracted to humility. He's so attracted to it. When you exhibit it, He will meet you in that moment with His power. Every eye closed, nobody looking around. If you're here today and you say, I need God's impossible working power. I need God's power that can do the impossible in a situation in my life today. Would you lift your hand and just say, that's me. That's me. I need it. I need it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, that takes humility to raise your hand, doesn't it? You have no idea how happy God is right now because you raise your hand. You have no idea how He's sitting on the edge of His seat saying, I'm about to meet you where you are. You have no idea. I want to pray and the team's going to sing. And when they do, I want you to come. I want you to take another step of humility and say, God, I humble myself. I confess that I need your help. And I ask you to meet me in your power right now. Lord, I thank you today that it is your great joy to meet us in this moment in your unlimited power. And we turn to you as the author and the protector and the finisher of our faith. And so, God, I pray today that you would meet us in your power. 
we take a step of humility right now. I want you to come right now. I want you to come right now. I want you to come right now. You lifted your hand or you didn't. I want you to come for prayer right now. Move right now. Say, God, by humility, I come. By confession, I come. By confession, I come.